That dog. Yeah, it's not going to stop. It's not likely to stop. All right. Well, at least for the duration of me listening and we talking here, I won't have to hear it because I just turned that that, uh, denoiser thing on. Oh, I see. That's good. So anybody listening listening should have a denoiser. Right, exactly. All podcast apps should come with that as a toggle. Turn off a neighbor's dog. Turn off the dogs. Yeah. Yep. And the fire engines. Maybe those would be separate. I don't know. I'm not a UI, UX person, but like maybe separate, maybe the same. I'm not sure. Toggle-wise. There could be. Um, I mean, I know we're very, you know, we have a, a history of having a really good audio. Right. Just pull that, put that right out there, right? We know what we're doing. Yeah, that, it's it's sort of uh, what we're known for. Yeah, I think so. Um, there could be uh, the sound of engines later. Mm-hmm. So, race cars near my home. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, allow triangulation to happen by any stretch of the imagination. But, right. But yeah, there could be race cars. Well, it's just the land next to the the raceway was so cheap. You yeah. could get it. You know, fifteen dollars an acre, and you you didn't think that they would ever be actually racing at the racetrack. It seemed wise. You know, fifteen years ago. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought this will be a perfectly quiet place to uh, to record some audio. It'll be perfect. Right. Uh, and then they just started racing. Yeah. ridiculous um so again this with this idea that we we clearly don't want any sort of uh we don't want to we don't want to say too much right about our location our physical location right don't want to give away i mean not just our physical location but also you know like too much about ourselves right too, too many personal opinions yeah uh, so. yeah I mean, we, we're uh sort of anonymous nerds right right living just in the internet Hopefully, right. more and more at more, least. Yes, that's right. That's the goal. It's a, it's a, it's a much more peaceful place, uh, in, in parts <laughs> of it at least. Less, right. Less so Twitter. But I did want to say, like, uh, when you're not in the internet, you are uh, you live in a house, right? I guess. I mean, it definitely inherits from type house. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's accurate. So would you say that there's some sort of like uh, abstract house? Whoa, that's a, uh, yeah, there's definitely an abstract like abode, perhaps, you know, dwelling, I think is what all homes inherit from. Uh, I think we, maybe we talked about this last time, but is that some sort of uh, platonic sort of situation where it's a platonically ideal house or abode and your, your, mm. your house sort of tries its best? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, this how it's really, I mean, if you want to talk about polymorphism, because it, it can be many things to many people, I think, kind of depending on, on their needs. I'm not sure that's that's what polymorphism means. Uh, many many things to many people. So you it, could it mean, potentially, like, it could be like a paintball arena. Well, right now it's a podcast studio. Right, that's true. And that's how I'm viewing it. I see. So that's a projection. Yeah. Maybe. I'm casting it as a as a podcast studio, uh, while other people are are using it for some other purpose. They're you know watching Netflix maybe in the background. Yeah, yeah. Disney. I'm guessing it's Disney. It's Disney. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so, so you live in a house. Let's say. Let's just say that you live in a house for the sake of argument. Okay. I, I, I can don't, go there. I'm not really sure what the argument is, but let's just say that you do. Yeah. Right. One of the things um, 
that I find interesting about a house is that it's sort of like, at least my, my idea of what a platonic ideal of a house is, is this sort of uh, box shaped, right? Uh-huh. Your house is vaguely box shaped. I've, I've seen your house. You've, you've let me, you know, stand on the, on, on the street and look at it from a distance. One may interpret it as a box. Right. Uh, and if you drill into it, if you were to look at like at the box and you look a little closer, you start to see the various rooms, right? Uh-huh. The room, each room is a box. Uh-huh. And then in the box, in the, in those rooms, maybe in the kitchen, you might have cabinets. In the cabinets. I've been in there once. I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, you should, you know, you should probably, you know, spend a little time in all the rooms. I mean, you're paying for them. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, and so I, I, I'm saying if you keep looking, it's like boxes all the way down. You know, all the way from the outside of your house to say the the Cheerios that are in the cabinet. Mm. Not the Cheerio, well, not not an individual Cheerio. That's a different shape. I don't know. That's what is that shape called? Some sort of a uh, shape of the universe, right? Taurus. Taurus. No. That's something like that. We can go back to that. I think that's a. Uh, I think that's a Ford. <laughs> yeah, that's a make a model. Yeah. Well, even the house is inside another box, which is the yard. The yard box. Interesting. So that then you have to think about like three dimensions versus two dimensions. But I mean, I don't know what the laws are in your area about airspace. <laughs> it's a free for all out here. Oh yeah. I live amongst the free folk. So you just you just raise a flag as high as you can get it. Yep. And that's a good idea. Um what was I saying this thing about houses? Uh, I think you were going about Boxes all boxes the way down. Boxes all the way down. It's some kind of structure is what it is. Would you call mm-hmm. it that? Um, the other day, I sent you a message uh, in some sort of text format. I can't recall what it was. But it was something about how I've been thinking about structured programming mm-hmm. lately. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and how when we write software, we maybe it's not boxes. I mean, sometimes we think about that analogy. Of boxes, I, at least I talk about that more often than maybe I should. Um, but you know, sort of this this uh, Russian nesting doll sort of scenario of boxes and within boxes within boxes. Uh, and in, in software, we have blocks. I'm going to call it a block, right? So you have like a, uh-huh. a class which contains methods, which contain if statements, which may contain you know while loops or and which other if statements or just random blocks that you decide to create you know, without uh-huh. any sort of reason for them. I mean, which languages uh, allow you to create a block of code just out of, just in the middle of a function somewhere. I don't think I've ever actually done that in practice, uh, but you could, if you were really keen on having a scope for maybe some variables and you didn't want to create another function for some reason. Yeah. I think I've only done that just, just to see that it can work. Never actually had a use for it. If I did, it would just become its own function, like its own named function and be moved somewhere else. Yeah, I can't, I literally cannot imagine a reason like that you would do that. Um, because you're right, like why not just create a name function? But anyway, it's all blocks. And blocks in, in C-derived languages are uh, wrapped in curly braces, sort of hugged. So it's, it's, it's like a hug, except it's really like pointy hug. So it's like a... Huh. It's like a really, you know, maybe if you have like a the, the like, points of the points of the hug are pointing outwards. It's like it's hugging, but it's not letting anything else in. Oh, that's know? interesting. I hadn't thought about it. So it's defensive. 
Yeah. So it's like uh, it's like a mother hugging her child and keep right. keep. It's like it a safe. reverse Iron Maiden. Mm, yeah, you know what like I mean? Inside like, you're safe maiden. inside. Yeah, it's snuggly. Yeah, but outside, be, you know, watch out. Well, it, when you told me that you were thinking about structured programming, it, it caused me to pause and go to Wikipedia, which is usually the sequence: pause, then go to Wikipedia, right. uh, and and kind of do some research and realize that I don't know what structured programming is. And that it's actually a little bit more abstract than I thought. And then I really started to think about unstructured programming mm. um, and this kind of continuum of, of programming traditions dating back decades now. And uh, yeah, so that's what I've been thinking about is unstructured programming and how we made it to structured programming. And then what's going to come after structured programming. It's, well, that's a whole, well, that, that's it, right? Basically before structured programming, Structured programming and then after. Well, that's think, the timeline right there. You've got it. I think probably what's going to happen is whatever the next thing is beyond structured programming, they're going to look back at what we call structured programming and call it something different. Hmm. I don't. I don't think they'll be like, oh yeah, that was structured programming, uh, and now we're doing something something else. I don't think it'll be binary anymore between structured and unstructured. It'll be it'll be a different paradigm. Is this like when uh, in the 20th century the artists created like modernist art, and then they had to do <laughs> postmodernist, and they realized that time continued to move forward, and they like kind right. of screwed up. Yeah, the naming. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> so whoever named it originally, the final pattern, right, or whatever is like, ooh, maybe we messed up. But yeah, I mean, uh, absent of any, you know, uh, Armageddon. It's, it's just not going, the naming is not going to work out. Right. Yeah. We should just start, just start numbering them. Some <laughs> type of sequence. <laughs> that was pattern zero. This is we're on pattern one now. So just, just you know. embrace semantic versioning. I'm with you. Right. Semantic versioning for everything. So the, the issue will be who gets to, you know, bump up that major version. Well, when is it a breaking change? Right. Yeah. That's the question. Well, we might have we might have a fork, you know. There might be there's going to instantly be two competing paradigms, um, possibly. And then what do we do? You're right. It's hopeless. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think that's the overall point. If any, if the listeners get anything out of this, is that it's hopeless. Um, I've been thinking this. This is the issue I've been thinking a lot about. Is like you should not allow any of your junior colleagues or anyone with hope to listen to this mm, podcast. That's an interesting point. Yeah. So but this, this is, is really, only for people who have already lost it. And we're not trying to ruin anyone, but we don't mind if right. you're already ruined. Right. Right. That's the company. You're, you're, you're totally doing. welcome. I right. That's fair. Bring your bitter jadedness to us and we will sort of amplify that for you. Well, it's, it's sort of like looking into the void and seeing the horror, the cosmic horror, mm -hmm. you know, that's what this is. Is that what we're doing? Well, no, I think I, that I should have taken. I, I, I think we're, we're we're telling stories from the cosmic horror. This is like a couple of people who witnessed the cosmic horror and are just talking about it. Is that, yep. what, is that what we're doing? That's a really long basically. Name. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. what? Well, I just want you to introduce the structured programming topic as you understand it. Hmm. Oh, I see. Well, 
when I was in college some years ago, um, there, my professors all seemed to talk about structured programming. They, they mentioned, they, they said this a lot. They said the word structured programming. And they didn't really describe what it was. And, and uh, frankly, it's possible that they did describe what it was and I wasn't listening. But I prefer to live in a world where they did not describe what it was. They just, they just said that it was amazing. They just said that this mm-hmm. is the way we write code. Um, and this was, you know, frankly, not that far removed from the early days. One of the things you said earlier was that you kind of brought back this idea that programming has been around for decades, right? So you mentioned something mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, at one level, that seems like a long time. But on another level, it's like not at all a long time. It's super recent. You know, it's part of this sort of telescoping effect of, of human uh, progressive progression, you know, of, of, of the things that we've built. So the 20th century was the most um, advanced and the most different century that humans have ever experienced, right? The, uh-huh. the, uh, a farmer in 1850 compared to a farmer in 1650 weren't all that different, right? But a farmer between 1850 and 1950 were dramatically different. And in 30 years from now, it's going to be even more so. Um, and so the average person has really changed a lot. So the 20th century was pretty, pretty, you know, dramatic. That's probably, I, I think that's not a very uh, um, surprising or controversial statement. But it's really worth noting that we really have not been doing this for very long. You know, this yeah. this computer business. Well, I mean, it's amazing to me that some of the originators of, of this still alive yes uh or you know very recently deceased um so it's pretty incredible you know it's like could you imagine talking to the original people who uh built back to the dwelling the home thing (laughs) the the first people to build a dwelling (laughs) you know if they were still around what kinds of things you would ask them like why did you do it What, what made you put together this thatch and get underneath it um I don't know. I think that is it is pretty incredible that we're still at the dawn, um, dawn of the age of of uh, electronic computers. And I and I don't think it's fair for us to treat computers on the same time scale as say you know homes, or even bridges or something like that, because um, it seems to be moving faster, right? So the innovation is not generational, right? The innovation doesn't happen because the next generation realizes something the previous generation didn't or built builds on top of it. It's really more the, the, you know, we realize this year or something we didn't realize last year, or maybe this decade, something we didn't realize like the last decade, you know? Well, I, yes, I think that is happening, but I, back to your farmer example, I think just the pace of innovation across a variety of, of industries and, and domains is increasing just because we have the ability to share and spread and, and travel um, you know, physical goods and information. Yeah, at, I, at such an incredible speed. I don't think it's just software development. I think that is the that's, that's what I mentioned earlier. This whole sort of telescoping effect of advancement uh, mm-hmm. of what we're doing. So yeah, for sure. You know, automobiles are a good example. Maybe any kind of mechanical device has changed dramatically in the past. You know, it wasn't you know a hundred years ago from where we're standing right here in our you know undisclosed locations uh, in 1920, so 100 years ago from 2020, there were there were automobiles. They weren't ubiquitous, but they existed in a lot of places. Uh, they, were exi- they were very popular at that point, but they were dramatically different from, say, a Tesla 
today. Huh. Right. And, you know, it's, it's like things have changed quite a bit. You know, I think that's the, that's the motto of the 20th century right there. Things changed quite a bit. Thanks for, yeah. yeah. If you could summarize it in just, a, just a single phrase. Right. Um, but yeah. I, I think I, what I think you were hinting at was you had your professors who were saying structured programming is, is amazing. Oh. Isn't it amazing that we get to code this way? Um, and for in me, at least, you know, I just, I can't imagine coding any other way. Yes. That's, uh, that's why it's so hard for me to be like, what is structured programming? Because I just read about it and I'm like, you mean programming? Um, and maybe it's cause your professors had the opportunity to, you know, computers to them were wires. They had to, uh, twiddle together to get things to communicate. I don't think it was, they weren't, they weren't quite that early on, but they were definitely the, the instructors that I, that taught me computer programming from the, at the beginning, uh, started programming with punch cards and they started, mm -hmm. you know, so they were definitely in the, you know, the sixties. Um, I'm going to say most of them probably learned in the sixties or seventies, probably not before that, but maybe I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, that's exactly right. Like when they, they talked about structure programming as if it were an innovation, but by the time even I was learning this idea, these ideas were basically just commonplace and normal. Um, and I, and I'm sure that there's a good example that I'm, I'm not thinking of now or an analogy uh, to some other aspect of life, but it's like, this is just how you do it. Right. Uh -huh. So, but the thing that's interesting to me is, so if you take, take somebody who's trying to build a bridge, Right. And today we can, we, you know, with our vast experience, you know, traversing and looking at bridges, either you or I, you know, even though we're not engineers, we could think about how to build a bridge and we might have some ideas. And we have this sort of history of, you know, of human bridge building behind us. But in the early days of bridge building, people were just figuring that out. They were just stacking rocks on top of each other, I imagine, or hanging, you know, like stretching boards as far as they can and then breaking in the middle as they tried to cross. I mean, Hmm. without really knowing they had no idea. And so, and I think that was very true in the early days of software development where you're like, well, the computer, this sort of, um, this, the architecture of a computer does, you know, runs instructions one at a time. So this, uh, this instruction counter goes, you know, move this, uh, bit of memory over here into this register and you know, move this other bit and then add them together and put the value in this register. Right. And then you have this idea of, well, I, I need to skip some stuff, so I'm gonna jump. So I'm gonna check a register to see if it's there. If there's a value there, I'm gonna jump. If if it's not if it's uh, not zero or whatever, I'm gonna jump and go somewhere else. You know, further on down or maybe backwards or whatever. If it's a loop, that sort of thing. Right. This this is kind of the way that the computer worked, and so this is the way that some of the early languages worked. And essentially, what that means is it was very very linear, very imperative, and also took heavy use of go-to statements. So this mm -hmm. idea of a jump, right, is a go-to. I, I, and I really, um, I, uh, I guess I should have done a little more research. I'm not sure um, how the word jump com, you know, com was changed into the term go-to. Maybe it was just a nicer, um, yeah, a nicer way to think about it. Yeah, it could um, be. Well, that, that kind of reminds me of what you were just saying, you, you know, that uh, phrase like you ship your organization in software engineering, what the, the shape of your 
kind of enterprise or organization will re be reflected in the, the way your software is architected. Yeah, I think uh, was that Conway's law. Is that Conway's law? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it to me feels a little bit like that, like the way you design programming languages. Uh, well, at least for for this example you're talking about here, you know, it's very much shaped by how close they were to the hardware. So they, they came from the hardware and were thinking about the metaphors of the hardware and therefore it was just reflected in those languages. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense, right? I mean, that's uh -huh. that's the only context that existed. Basically, right. the context was machine code, right? And and the hardware. I mean, the, hard, the hardware and then we have this machine code and we have like this whole idea of the early programmers. You know, the women who were early programmers were basically just like, you know, moving wires around. Right and doing and soldering things together, which was basically what programming was. Right. Well, we want uh, to go through this, um, you know, this switch now or whatever. So we're going to move this wire over here. Um. And so make I, it's it you know there's no there would be no reason to do anything else. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to me that there's this this leap from from that. To this sort of higher level language. I mean, I, I guess it's, you know we can easily look back and call it a leap, but I'm sure it didn't feel like a leap at the time. It was it was a slow process of really under, starting to understand the the difference between what a high level language could do and what the computer could do, and the way that you could translate those things. Uh -huh. You know, that was that was real innovation and real a real discovery. And, you know, there's some people who maybe uh, dismiss the notion of computer science as a science. Um, but I think it's really interesting because it is a science. Like we are discovering things. I say we, I'm not really one of those people. But <laughs> like these, you know, human beings are discovering things about this computer that they, at least ostensibly, invented. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the reasons why people challenge it as a science is because we're discovering things about things that we build ourselves instead yeah. of the natural world. Um, but I, I am on the side of it's a science. I do think that um, that counts. It's not just about the natural world, but I do see the distinction people try to make between kind of original philosophy and, and uh, the natural world and science in that discipline and this kind of science. Well, this idea that this kind of 18th and, and, and 19th, 18th, 19th century idea of of sort of what natural philosophy or whatever is definitely a departure, you know, that, you know, the foundations of science was all about nat the natural world. But I, I think you're right. Like some, we, we certainly have invented these machines, uh, but we keep discovering things about them, which I think is just, I think is really fascinating. And I think it's also a reflection of, of, this of uh, maybe, I mean, we invented these things, but we didn't really know what they were, you know? Uh -huh. I mean, just like, I'm, you know, I stretch this, but, you know, if you're an architect or you're, you're, you're constructing buildings, you know, it's not until you finish building something, you know, the first time or whatever that you start to think about, you know, what's load bearing or how does, you know, how, how can this, well, how much weight can this building actually hold? I imagine those first few structures, you know, people didn't think about those things. But then when things collapsed, they started like, you know, maybe we should consider like uh, some structural support here. Um, and so we, as human beings, we sort of, 
we we build and then we learn and then we build some more. Right? That's just sort of what we do. And I think there's not a better example of that, of sort of that part of human nature than computers. Well, I think we're getting a little off the structure. I'm pretty sure this topic. is all about structure programming. So. Okay. But I, <laughs> I, I do I do think that's an interesting idea. And I think one of the reasons why computer science departments across the, at least the United States, have sort of suffered the last couple of decades is, is they're a bit divorced from that um reality like the the programs or the the bridges as we might call them mm. don't collapse in in the uh, academic world they collapse in the professional world and there's not really a great feedback you know there people aren't taking their code back to colleges and saying hey this didn't work what can i how, how can i make this better and then create some type of scientific discovery loop um, which I think is necessary. It is how you improve and, and build those patterns, but that's not happening in the computer science departments. It's happening online and in uh, the professional world. Yeah, it's something, you know, there's a, there's a few examples. I mean, something like um, the, the major internet companies uh, are, they have their own research departments and they might sort of outsource things to the universities, but it, it doesn't seem that there's, there's the same connection or really there's a connection that you would want between industry and, and academia. I mean, we're, we're both a little bit outside of that, but I think, I think that's fair. It would be nice. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I would say it would be nice if, if academic institutions could focus more on the science and um, maybe with partners with, with stronger partnerships uh, with, with industry. That being said, you know, some, you know, an organization like Microsoft Research created, you know, F Sharp, for example, and they're certainly doing, they're doing things with uh, quantum computing that are really interesting. Uh, and they are partnering yeah. with, with higher, with universities and in, in higher education. So it is, it's, it's happening. Um, sure. I don't think it's a, it's a complete void. There are definitely some bright spots, but also have some qualms about industry and, and scientific research, you know, if this was like medical drugs that we were talking about and, Oh, this pharmaceutical company is partnering with this. Well, we would be a little suspicious yeah. about, about the results of that. And I think that that's justified given history. Um, now I think it's, it can be a good thing as well. We just need to, I, I, there is a place in this world for pure computer science research for the sake of science that does not have to be tied to industry but I don't think the way that we're going about it, at least as a country, I can't speak for other countries, but at least for the United States, I don't think it's, um, it's going very well. I, I do not think it's going very well. Well, I mean, and then, you know, I think it's, it's fair to ask the question, was it ever the ideal? And I don't know that it ever was. I mean, I think in the earlier days of, of computers, um, there was military, you know, certainly the early machines, of the forties were, were military backed thinking about like, how can we do math faster basically? And then, you know, the space program drove a lot of things. And then, uh, the military certainly has this. And again, it's not, it's not pure science, but it's certainly, you know, here's the, the financial backing, uh, and other, other organizations, other universities, they saw the value there. But I wonder if, I wonder if earlier in earlier days, mo the average person just didn't understand the computer. Maybe they just didn't really 
have a sense about the power of it. They just vaguely knew that it's something that we needed to do and we should just do it. And they didn't really look, they didn't really bother with trying to figure out um, or, or getting involved or trying to understand enough to try to make decisions or direct the, uh, the research efforts. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm speaking outside of my understanding to be honest, but that, that's, uh, that's what this podcast is all about. Oh, we should have a tagline. Yeah. Speaking outside of our understanding. Yeah. So anyway, structure programming is like your house. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> okay. Are we, are we ready to start the podcast? Yeah. I, I think okay. so. I think that, is, that was the preamble. The preamble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in, oh, I'm going to get this date wrong. Why don't I have it in front of me? I believe I'm going to say it was 1969. That's what I'm going to say. Whether or not that's correct is uh, up to the listener to decide. Um, oh, I just looked it up. It was 1968. I apologize. So there was this mm-hmm. famous letter, an open letter, uh, which is basically one that apparently you don't know. You, you don't really know who to send it to. So you, it's an open letter right. uh, by by Dijkstra, a famous computer scientist whose yep. uh, first name has more vowel or more consonants <laughs> than you would expect. Um, right. Uh, I don't. I literally don't know how to pronounce his name. I want to call him Edgar, but that's not right because they, when you say Edgar, there's an A in there, but there's no A. In 7A, there's an S. Like he went by Ed. Ed, yeah. Ed Dykstra. Eddie, we'll call him. Friends call yeah. him that. Um, he wrote an interesting, uh, let's call it an interesting, open letter to, to the world, uh, the world of software developers, the world of computer science. Uh, called go-to statements considered harmful. Now he didn't actually name it that. This was actually in a journal. He wrote this open letter to. The journal themselves named it that. He wrote it. Uh, I can't. Oh, I'm going to be wrong about this again. The title that he wrote was less boring. Um, so go-to statements considered harmful uh, is basically the the famous the famous right. letter that has been riffed on a million times. Yeah, this whole X considered harmful or whatever. Right. Um, and it's very short. It's worth reading. Uh, and he mentioned the term structured programming in uh, in that letter. And basically, he was saying, you know, go when you write go to statements, or when you do a go to, so you go from here to there, sort of without any sort of control or any sort of structure around it. Just it's you know it's a bit um, chaotic. He's you know he made the statement that it's hard to understand what the heck you're doing. Sure, the computer doesn't care. The computer really does, in fact, understand jumps. And if you say to jump to this memory location, it will happily do so. But the reader of the code doesn't understand what you're saying. And so that's the harm part. Sensible and provable, which is a whole other area that we maybe don't need to get into. But this idea of like provable software, it just goes out the window as soon as you throw a go-to in there. And... So he created this idea of structure programming, which, well, I, I don't want to say he created it, but he coined the phrase structure programming. Um, is that is the unprovability part, is that just because you you wouldn't know necessarily until runtime yeah. what uh, what instruction you might hit because you could do something funky? I mean, that's essentially my understanding, yes. Okay. Um, and then there's um, there's, well... We can talk about decidability of like, uh, which leads into the halting problem at some point. And we can talk about that whenever you want. <laughs> Next time. 
Next time. Next time. Right. That's, that's a good, that's a, the halting problem sounds like a whole podcast. Does it? Um, okay. So this idea of structure programming is, you know, at a really, at a really kind of um, course level, I guess, structure programming is programming without go-tos. So programming that uses sort of the controls or the, the flow that that we today think about programming as being made up of. There, uh, the way that we think about imperative programming being constructed, at least, which is primarily the programming that we do. Imperative programming meaning this idea that we're going to tell the computer what to do. And so, the, yeah, I, I, just, hmm? I don't know. I just still I still just find it fascinating that, you know. That there was a that that it had to be invented, I guess. It is, or it had to be coined. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like, is there a parallel in um, human kind of spoken language? That at some point in history, we went from just saying words in any order to saying, "Hey, we need uh, there's a proper order to the words we say." We add some structure to our spoken language. Like, what was that like? Well, my, um, my guess is that it is a similar sort of evolution. Of course, this is just a guess. But in that, in spoken language, I'm, I'm sure, you know, the earliest spoken language were just a series of nouns, right? You know, uh-huh. these are the things re- that represent other physical things in the world. Here's an apple, a rock, you know, my child or whatever. And, and then maybe you grew, maybe you grow into verbs. I'm going to act on this apple in some way. Um <laughs> But it wasn't until later, it was, it was like th- those things evolved. This idea of like the 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 way we structure sentences evolved. But it wasn't until much longer after they evolved that anybody bothered to study it. Right? And so that's that's my guess here is that you know Dijkstra is not inventing something. Dijkstra is talking about something that exists. He's saying well, maybe it's maybe it's not necessarily that structured programming was invented and then someone decided to to study it maybe it was the studying that invented structured programming well i, I think have to assume i think that's interesting because i I'm, i think that it happened early enough in programming that there were still plenty of people who disagreed i mean his the essay or open letter or whatever about go-to statements being harmful was not met with like general you know acceptance there were definitely people who were against it you know, it wasn't, it was somewhat controversial. And that's because people were still programming and thinking that they wanted to be as close to the metal as possible. You know, they were just writing, like they were basically writing assembly code. And so he's making a case for a higher level language in part. And once you're in a higher level language that you should not use go-to statements, basically. Right. Maybe you should, you know, if you're, you're already writing Fortran or I don't know, B or whatever was going on in uh, 1968, and you're, or Algol, I think, is actually the language mm-hmm. that he used. Um, so if you're writing in Algol, you know, and you're not using go-to statements, and you're not, you know, you're you're basically on the cutting edge at that point. So I think he's discovering, or maybe not discovering, he's, re- he's describing how he and other people are writing software in these higher level languages. But he's also advocating for that. So unlike probably, I'm guessing, natural human language where you, you don't need to advocate for proper sentence structure because that's sort of evolved over time until somebody noticed it. 
software was so young that there were still plenty of people who needed to maybe be convinced or people who weren't doing it that way. It's an artifact of which, you know, this is sort of an interesting artifact of this idea we talked about early on at the top of the show of the telescoping effect of human progress. So mm. we have definitely, our, our technology, our innovation has progressed rapidly, more rapidly. The rate of change is increasing. But who we are as human beings hasn't changed in 200,000 years. You know, so like this, we're, you know, it, it, the fact that we're able to, to make more innovative products or build more, you know, innovative software doesn't mean that we're actually growing our ability to understand it that much quickly, more quickly. And so, you know, even though he was part of this vanguard of, of uh, software innovators, that doesn't mean that there weren't plenty of people who had like, were still lagging. Because mm-hmm. that's who, you know, as people, we're still, we're still just trying to figure out what the heck we're doing. That's the whole, you know, there's a whole other podcast about the, uh, maybe the, uh, the artificial intelligence singularity that will come. Right. Take yeah. Oh, well, we just can't predict <laughs> what that's going to do. Yeah, well, I, I guess my question for you is where are we headed from here? What's happening? What's going to be the um, kind of short term and medium term? You know, what's the next two years look like? What's the next 10 years look like? Yeah, I've been really thinking about your um, your your take on AI as as starting with tools that help us and maybe may, maybe ending with replacing us as developers. Huh. Um, I kind of am inclined to think that AI that replaces us as developers has essentially already replaced us everywhere else. <laughs> you, know? you, know, you think we might be the last, the last bastion of human uh, employment? I mean, I don't know, you know, what else there is. Hmm. I mean, Certainly, I'm not suggesting that artificial intelligence will have like cre- discovered all of the things that are to discover in chemistry or physics or biology or any other sciences or, you know, um, even engineering or civil engineering or anything like that. But mm-hmm. the idea that that there could be, you know, an intelligence that could essentially be c- capable of trying all the things, right? Like a of modeling, you know, maybe chemistry. So modeling the reality of the various uh, or atoms and periodic table and figuring out how they would uh, react to each other. And just, mm-hmm. you know, being able to just try everything to sort of brute force everything. I don't know, that feels like something that could happen before we have um, the ability to instruct a machine in some sort of natural language in human language to tell it to, you know, how our, our next um, disruptive business idea is going to work. Right. I, I don't know. Maybe that's naive of me, but that's, that, that feels like a, a higher order problem or a more difficult problem. Um, well, and it's also a, a matter of, of scaling that out to, to all these people. Like I can imagine some laboratory where they have some powerful quantum computer that does simulate every mole, every possible molecule in the universe. Um, and they come up with some type of new material that does seem more possible because it's just one location with one specific domain problem. Um, scaling out AI assistance to every developer that can handle all kinds of problems. That That's even though like 
probably less of an important thing in terms of human exploration uh, is just a harder problem. That's really interesting because I think you're, I think you're right. I hadn't thought about it like that before, but that becomes a harder problem again. Something we haven't had in a little while. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is well, like, cause I'm sure that these AI systems are not going to be, you know, they're, they're going to be pretty, pretty intense and they're going to require right. a lot of, a lot of power. Yeah. They're not going to run on the Raspberry Pi five or whatever, right. whatever is available. I mean, year. they're not going to run on my quad core laptop. Maybe. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, that, that is interesting. I mean, there might be some kind of, uh, connection between coding in, in the cloud, like with Azure or GitHub code spaces or whatever they call it now. Um, where your, your assistant is sort of centralized and not actually running on your hardware possibility there. Sure. But um, even then, if you're talking about, you know, if you're talking about assistance where that still continues to require developers to be assisted, then uh -huh. there's, you know, there's a ton of assistance that need to work. That's still a hardware problem. I think even at the clouds, even at cloud scale. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, no, I think that that is probably where we're headed in the next 10 years is uh, away from this hyper imperative style and we're more descriptive in, in what we want the end state to be and the computer will just figure that out. So we'll go from like plain spoken word domain problem, um, you know, exposition to, and we won't even see the code that gets generated, right? It'll come up with some beautiful picture with some mockups of, of a interface and as we talk and all that. And that will be so different from what we call structured programming today that we'll have to give it a new name. What's well, interesting. I mean, I think, you know, I'm not done a good job of answering your question. This, you know, the idea of structured programming is tightly, I think, tied to imperative programming, which is sort of, you know, you create procedures and those things, you know, you change the value of maybe global variables or any kind of variable. I mean, there's a lot of mutation involved with imperative programming. It's just like we're explicitly changing things and telling telling the computer what to do, which is opposed to object-oriented programming, which is really kind of imperative programming, except you have this concept of objects thrown in, um, as opposed to something like functional programming, where... And, you know, you, it's really structural programming, but you don't ever change any values. I'm going to call, I'm going to go ahead and just define functional programming that way, even though nobody knows what, how to define it. So functional programming is structural programming, but with immutability. How about that? Which does, you know, quite a, change it quite a bit, frankly. Um, so you don't have, you know, a for loop anymore because you, you have, you don't have a, a mutable counter variable that so you might use it. You might use a, a loop of some other kind, or you might use recursion or something. Um, but what you're talking about is more declarative programming, you know. And there, and there, I don't know that there's ever a, there's any language or any environment that is only any one of these things, these sort of types of programming. There, everything is maybe some combination of all of these, um, maybe. Maybe there's some things that aren't really functional or maybe there are, I don't know. Uh, some languages that don't have recursion perhaps maybe wouldn't be considered functional. Um, mm -hmm. but, but this idea like declarative programming is this idea of like, this is what I want it to be. I'm going to build this structure in some format that I want to be translated directly into another format. 
So I, you know, the, the sort of, in my mind, the, the canonical example of declarative programming is HTML. I write this code, now, you know, I don't want to get into the debate about whether HTML is a programming language, but I write this code, this sort of text that's in a structured way that is with these angle brackets and these text, these words and all this stuff and everything. And then the browser takes that and makes something, an image from it, some sort of picture, some visual interactive tool from it. Mm-hmm. To me, that is like the, the ultimate imperative programming. Um, you know, some folks might say something like SQL would be imperative programming too. I think that's fair. I'm going to describe the data that I want and the conditions in which I want it. And then you would be the declarative. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Well, okay. So using those definitions, I think what I'm, what I'm thinking is we head more in an unstructured declarative direction, hmm. which is I describe things, but not necessarily in the order in which they appear. Like I'm talking about, you know, this section, then I immediately talk about another section or another feature. And it's a, it's unstructured. I'm, I'm, I'm jumping or go toing a bunch of uh, different things instead of talking about one piece of declaration all at once. And so it is a bit unstructured uh, in, in terms of how we describe it. We don't have to s- describe the entire thing all at once. Huh. Um, so I think that, that that will be, even if, you know, even if this is, this conversation is, not relevant. Um, that will be how it goes anyway. That that'll be how we interact with these AI assistants, kind of describing bits and pieces, and it can keep up with. Or that'll be a key feature that it will need is to be able to keep up with our thoughts as we pro, you know, as we think them in our brain, not necessarily as as we type them. I mean, that's super interesting to me. What you just said, like that, reminds me of, you know, a piece of descriptive text. Uh, you know, uh, I mentioned a short story that describing a scene, you know, the, the description of any characters in the scene or the action happening in the scene could happen at any moment, any time within the narrative, but really you're describing a moment. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the order in which those things happen is irrelevant as long and you know, basically it's everything from the beginning of the paragraph to the end is fits in that same moment. What you know, the, thinking about it that way, and the the fact that we as human beings can process that paragraph and make sense of it, I mean, I think does imply that a computer could do the same. Yeah, that's cool. That's interesting. Um, so, just to to make a prediction, I think in the next couple of years, what we're going to see, and I, I think we're already seeing it actually, but it's going to go mainstream um, and be sort of accepted, is this rejection of patterns and, and, and best practices and structure. I think, um, I mean, we're already seeing a little bit of this as people transition more towards like functions as a service and very small bits of code instead of large applications or even what we'd call a microservice, which is, has some reasonable complexity as we move more towards functional or functions as a service. Um, people just want to get work done. People just want to, I mean, that's what they say. They just want to do something once. If they ever needed to change what that thing did, they wouldn't necessarily need to have any patterns in in, in there because they just rewrite the entire thing. It's so small. So I feel like we're going to get a bit of a pushback on some of these, these practices that we've been talking about that have sort of been adopted over the last 30 years in our industry. And... People are going to push back and it, it's a bad idea, but I think it's sort of natural, this TikTok of, of kind of 
how these things go, but people will push back and that'll sort of gain mainstream acceptance. And then the pushback to the pushback will occur. And that's what will push us more towards these AI tools. Huh. Um, because people got... will start to get completely, they'll start to write just, just awful, horrible, hard to read code. And then someone's going to come out with a tool or multiple people will come out with a tool and say, um, okay, you can, you can code that way, that awful way, but here's this other tool that will run behind you and clean up your mess. So you don't have to be worried about the best practices and the patterns. We'll handle that for you. Um, so I think that the, the short term will give us the medium term. That's a pretty, uh, detailed prediction. Yeah, we'll see. You know, I love predictions because they're never true, but they, you know, <laughs> I wish more people would make predictions cause they're fun. Okay. All right. That's interesting. I'm going to predict that you're wrong. All right. <laughs> but likely, likely. Yeah. That's a pretty safe bet, actually. <clears throat> now, Would you I, like to get any further out on the limb? I mean, I think that if you take this, if you if you project the evolution of, say, microservices in some sort of linear way, as if we're continually going to go that direction, you know, more and more that direction, then you end up where you where you're claiming. But I don't I don't actually think we're going to get that far. Um, I think, you know, having an API or some kind of external service as a building block, I mean, there's a, there's a ton of talk um, about, you know, it's, you can do so much more powerful things now because you, you put all these like massive blocks together. Like here's this API that does, you know, natural language processing. Here's some API that does geolocation. You put them together and you end up with like people's favorite, you know, you know, ice cream stores or whatever. Um, but I think what's going to end up happening, here's my prediction, that it's going to be those really complex but also standalone services will end up being these functions. It's really what's happening today. Like those are the functions that you call into. But, you know, the code that you, that an individual team writes, I don't think is going to be spread across multiple services. I think that that's you know the the maintenance complexity of that and the the operational complexity of those things, you know even if people try to do that, it's not going to work, and I don't think it's going to stick very very hard. We you know I do think that, um, yeah, calling into external services that do big things is probably a reasonable thing to to say is happening now and will continue to happen. I just I don't think that we're going to get so far down the road that every function is some sort of API or sort of web API, and, you know that and then we end up having some big counter move, you know, like uh, uh, pendulum swing back away from that. I just don't think we're going to get that far. Um, I think I think we're eventually going to get to a place where immutability is the norm and um, maybe something like single threaded processes. I, I honestly, I, I feel like the Erlang model is the future of software development, but I kind of think it's the distant future. The Erlang model being you have these individual processes uh, that run as a single thread that are not at all multi-threaded and they share they don't share state. They just basically uh, pass messages to each other. So you pass, if I send you a message, it's a copy of some data. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and unlike Erlang, I expect that, you know, maybe that will be more structured and more, you know, type safe or whatever. 
Um, but I do expect, I think that is the natural model of software. And I guess I really think that because at least in my super naive imaginings of how my brain works and my, you know, my thought process works, it maps to that. And, and I mm -hmm. think that that is basically the idea of a, a neural net, you know, um, in, in more of a, you know, mechanical or machine learning context where you have these neurons or these, these nodes or whatever that do a process that maybe they do one thing and they do it in some sort of single threaded way, right? It's just a linear approach to doing it. And it's a structured approach actually is what it is. So within that node, you have loops, you might have uh, if statements, you might have blocks of code, you might have separate functions, you might have all that, but it's really just, you know, taking some input and then returning some kind of output or doing something. So it's either receiving a message and then responding to that message. We, we are dangerously close to getting into a conversation about the actor model. I mean, that's what it is. That is what it is. <clears throat> yeah. I don't want to do we, that necessarily. But right. I yeah. think well, that, that has a whole history that we'd have to talk about, and uh, and we're we're almost at our our allotted time here. I think but, that's uh, the future of software development because I think that yeah. model is like the way we think. How about that? Yes, I think. Well, I think there's many futures. Um, I agree with you. Like, I guess it just depends on the context of the software that you're writing. But you know, we're starting to get processors. Um, consumer processors that have so many cores, how do you program against those? Um, and I think the actor model of, of programming is a very good, you know, it lends itself naturally to those hundred core processors or whatever we're going to have soon. It's the thing that I appreciate about JavaScript. The, the thing that I appreciate about JavaScript is its single threaded nature. Huh. And that the way that you deal with having multiple cores is you find a way to make it single threaded. Well, That's what I think you do. Well, from a language standpoint, yes. Yeah. I think you definitely get rid of a lot of complexity. Um, it is much easier on the developer. Right. So as, I, I agree with you. It's not the thing I appreciate about JavaScript, but I, I agree that that's a good thing. What did, oh, I would really want to know what you appreciate about JavaScript. I appreciate that uh, it, that's what TypeScript puts out. So you, you appreciate about type, type <laughs> coercion is what you're looking for? Like that? Yeah. Yeah? I, uh, no, yeah no I, I and undefined. I feel like you should have null and undefined. Those are why, those are different things. Right. We should have both and of those things. Nan. Nan. Oh, that's and, a good yeah. point, yes. Nan. Yeah. What else? So, um, yeah, I love JavaScript because it runs everywhere. I think uh, an empty object is true. That seems right. <laughs> right? Oh, oh, oh! Yeah, you're starting to get into the <laughs> the, the edges here. Yeah, sorry. The edges of sanity. Yes. The the cosmic horror reaches back. It, you know, you can't just keep yelling at it. It's going to fight back at one at some point. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not sure that we got to the bottom of structured programming, but we certainly got to the top. Yeah. Um, it's a top down so approach. Right. It's just such such a fascinating topic. I think uh, we've uncovered some future topics, possibly we could talk about. We do a deep dive into Dijkstra. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we, we really should at some point cover the actor model. I feel like maybe we both have a lot to say about that. Um, we both see it as a really valuable paradigm for programming. Um, although I'm curious, you know, I feel like it has a, a bit more of a specific 
uh, application sounded like you were maybe saying it was possibly more broadly applicable. Uh, so that'd be, that'd be interesting to talk about next time. Is this part of what we're, we're not, we're going to claim to talk about something next time and then talk about something <laughs> different, right? We're still doing that. Uh, yeah. I'm not supposed to right. call no. that out. I, I actually, I genuinely want to talk about the actor model. I feel like hmm. what the thing is, is like most of the time, like 90, 80, 90% of the time we, we need, we mention a topic that we never come back, Yeah. but every once in a while we do. So it keeps people like thinking maybe they will talk about that. It could totally happen. Yeah, it could totally happen. Yeah. So, well, we'll have to leave it there for tonight. Uh, I'll bid you adieu, sir. All right. Goodbye.